We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. Continuing our verse by verse study. And we left off in verse 14 last week. 2 Kings chapter 11. And verse 14. Glad you've joined us, and we know we have some more coming in from the parking lot and others tuning in on our Facebook page, which, by the way, has been a wonderful addition to know that anywhere in the world someone can tune in and hear truth taught. Even if your car's broke down. All right. Last week, upon hearing and now seeing for herself that Joash, a little boy, had been proclaimed king, Athaliah rent her clothes. She tore her clothes. She was the illegitimate queen over Israel, and she cried, treason, treason. How about that? She went into the house of the Lord, a place where she was a total stranger by her own choice. And she saw that Joash had been proclaimed king, which means she wasn't going to be queen anymore. And while everyone else had celebrated this and rejoiced, she cried treason, treason. And that's where we left off last week in verse 14. So if you'll look down there, 2 Kings eleven fourteen, at the last part of the verse, it says, And Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. The anointing of a king was to her a crime of treason, a crime against the throne that she held. And the word treason means a conspiracy. It is also translated in the Old Testament as the word confederacy, from which we get the word confederate. And they actually go together. This is beautiful, the way the Hebrew language is structured. When a group of people, now that's a confederacy, unlawfully rise up against a government, that's the conspiracy, then you have treason. Our Constitution allows for a change in government, but the wording in there is very carefully written because it says that this change of government should never be done for light or transient causes. In other words, just because someone says, well, I don't like the president or I don't like the Congress and I think we're going to revolt, well, then you're engaging in treason. The first treason you see in the Bible is found where a lot of our firsts are found, in the book of Genesis, in fact, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, where Satan, in the form of the serpent, approached Eve to persuade her to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God's government was an absolute monarchy, but it was a benevolent monarchy because although God was and is absolutely in charge, 
There is none beside him. There is none above him. He is a good God. He's a benevolent monarch. He does, he's not a cruel monarch. He's benevolent, but he is at the same time just, and he's righteous in all that he does. And there was a treason that took place in the Garden of Eden. And the conspiracy part of it was that Satan, the serpent, and Eve, and then Adam, formed an agreement. And that agreement was to unlawfully rise up against the legitimate ruler of the government under which they were subjects. And that had already been established. God created all things, and therefore all things are subject to him. There wasn't a vote. There wasn't an election. There were no dominion counting machines or miscounting machines, as they may also be. There was God and his creation. And it was beautiful and wonderful, and there was no sin in the garden. There was no sin in the world. But this conspiracy among these three occurred when the confederacy of two or three rose up. They agreed together that the rule of government, the one rule they had to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that rule should be overthrown, therefore the government overthrown, by disobedience. Now that's the first treason you see. And the command they disobeyed was a lawful command. It wasn't an unlawful command. And then the treason was carried out by the conspirators, by the confederacy. It was carried out when Eve and then her husband ate of that forbidden fruit. And what was the penalty for that act of treason? Same one we have in our Constitution. Death. You can get the death penalty for treason. Did you know that? Well, it was death for mankind. And that death was a separation from God. Yes, their bodies began to die as they were cut off from their source of life and kicked out of the garden. And they were separated from God by their sin. Now, in our case, did Athaliah have a legal cause against Joash and those who proclaimed him as king? No, she didn't. Because her government, though it was powerful, and although it lasted eight years, as the Bible tells us, her government was illegitimate. So... The fact that she never had a rightful claim to the throne means that her accusation of treason didn't hold water. She couldn't rightfully accuse Joash and his followers of treason. In fact, she was the one guilty of treason. When she killed all the seed royal eight years before this time, except Joash because the Levites hid him, Jehoiada hid him in the temple. For all those years. Perhaps you've heard of the word gaslighting. It's two words. It's kind of a new term, but it's a very old concept. Well, guess what? 
This is one of the earliest cases of gaslighting found in history. By ruling for eight years on an illegitimate throne, trying to convince all of those under her that she was the legitimate ruler, Athaliah tried to psychologically manipulate Joash and his followers by creating a false narrative, which calls into question their own sanity. And it didn't work. It works on people today. The more often an untruth is repeated and repeated and repeated, the more often Christians are called evil and narrow-minded and all of these other pejorative terms, the more people believe it. And that's what gaslighting is. It's a psychological manipulation of another person to make them believe a reality that's not so and to question their own reality. Let me tell you how to avoid it. You don't have to be super intelligent. You don't have to be super gifted. If you'll just hold to the truth of God's word, you will not fall victim to being gaslighted. Oh, others are going to say evil things about you, just as Athaliah did Joash and his followers. But they won't be correct. And you won't fall into the trap of believing what they say. Now look in verse 15, where it says, But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, that is, Athaliah, and him that followeth her kill with the sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. But Jehoiada the priest, he intervened, when the accusation of treason was made by the queen. And although Athaliah had been the highest governmental authority in Israel for eight years, she was never above the law of God. She may have thought she was above the law of her own country, but she was never above the law of God. And therefore, Jehoiada, rather than saying, hey, wait a minute, guys, The queen is crying treason, treason. We better back off. We don't want to get in trouble with the law. Oh, he did the opposite. He said, take her out of here. Get her out. Take her without the ranges. Now, we ran across that term, the ranges. If you'll just look back up in verse 8, probably on the same page as verse 14 or 15, there at verse 8, where Jehoiada gave command to those who were guarding the house of the Lord. And ye shall compass the king round about, every man with his weapons in his hand, and he that cometh within the ranges, let him be slain. So you see that command? Jehoiada had already said, if anybody breaches this line, they die. Well, I guess what is implied here in our verse, when in our verse 15, when Jehoiada said, have her forth without the ranges... What's implied is that she came within the ranges. She came to the place where Jehoiada had said, all who come to the ranges die. And that means within range or within the boundary. It's a phrase we don't use so much nowadays. So her death sentence was already upon her as soon as she walked in within the ranges. Now, being the queen... She probably thought there was nowhere she couldn't go. 
no house, no land, no business, even the temple. And it's amazing how power deludes those who hold it by making them think they're above the law. I read an article this week. A Florida law enforcement officer stopped a man who was driving a golf cart, and it was unregistered. They're supposed to have some sort of registration or identification plate on it there in Florida. And he had a female passenger. These are grown folks. And when the officer approached the man who was driving the illegal golf cart, the female passenger flashed her badge. And she said that she was the chief of the Tampa Police Department. Now, that's a fairly large police agency in Florida. And here's what she said to the officer. I'm hoping you'll just let us go tonight. As she held that badge up there. In other words, the law that she and her officers and that this officer would be enforcing on other folks shouldn't be applied to her. That was her that was what she said. That's what she implied. Now I'm in that same profession in law enforcement. And I'm going to tell you it takes a lot to gain people's trust and not much time to lose it. You don't have to do much to lose people's trust. That's not just in my profession, that's in life. That woman placed herself above the law, didn't she? In a much more serious way, Athaliah did the same thing. She thought she could go into the temple, into the Lord's house, and do what she wanted to do. She went within the ranges, so Jehoiada said, take her without the ranges, get her out of here. Now look back in verse 15. After it said, have her forth without the ranges, the next part says, and him that followeth her kill with the sword. I consulted various translations of the original language here, and I didn't see any of them that said kill her with the sword, just those who follow her. However, because the command had already been given, that whoever comes within the ranges, let him be slain, let him be killed, then we are to assume that she would be killed. It was already implied, in other words. She entered the forbidden place. There is a great significance to this command to kill him that followeth her with the sword. You see, it's not just... Athaliah, the illegitimate queen who was going to be killed for her crimes, but also those who followed her. Those people had the opportunity to choose God's way, didn't they? In fact, for Athaliah to have killed all the seed royal, all of those who could have become king, required the cooperation of a lot of military forces. A lot of rough characters had to say, I'll do it. If all of them would have said, no, lady, you're not the queen. In fact, you're going to jail. That's treason. She would have never had any power. So for her to have power, 
The same way it is for anybody in this world to have power, they have to have people under them who are willing to go along with that. But they decided to go along with Athaliah, and because they did, Jehoiada said, if anybody follows her, and I don't think it just meant those who follow her physically out without the ranges, but anyone who follows her, who says, oh no, she's still my queen, I don't proclaim Joash as king, then let him be killed. You know, when Lucifer sinned and was cast out of heaven, many angels followed him. A few years ago, we went verse by verse through the book of Revelation. About as good a study as you'll ever have. If you have notes on it or you have it on recording, Brother Fulton did a a fantastic job of bringing clarity to a lot of places in there that were unclear to all of us. And in the 12th chapter of Revelation, in verse 4, the first part of verse 4, is talking about this dragon. And it says, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. Now the analogy there was of the dragon, that power, which is Satan, as we learn later in the chapter, Draw, with his tail drawing a third part of the stars of heaven. Not talking about the twinkle, twinkle little stars. That was also speaking about the angels in heaven, those stars. And then in verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. Now listen to this. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. It's evident that Satan, just like Athaliah, had followers, and he still does. And Satan's followers were cast out of heaven as he was. Now, just to remind you, they were cast out, although Satan still had and still has access to the presence of God. We learn that in the book of Job, where in the first chapter of Job it says that when the sons of men went to present themselves before God, Satan presented himself before God. And, of course, the the rest of the book of Job is just a wonderful, wonderful story about testing and suffering and how good God is and how sinful man is. But Job, the book of Job lets us know that Satan had access to God even though he and his followers had been cast out of heaven. But one day, and I believe that this prophecy in Revelation is pointing to that final day when they'll be cast out for good. There won't be any more presenting himself before God to accuse the brethren day and night, which is what he does to us. His casting out will be final, and so will that of his followers. His followers are going to be cast out for good too. You know, Lucifer was one of only three angels, high angels, high-ranking angels that were ever named in the Bible. The other two are Michael and Gabriel. And some commentators have had the opinion that that meant that each one of them were in charge of a third of the angels of heaven. 
So Satan took his, or Lucifer took his third with him and became Satan. I don't know if that's the case or not. But I do know the Bible says he took a third of the stars with his tail. And with all the power that Lucifer had and all the power he has as Satan, because he is powerful, he's not going to be able to rely on his old associations with heaven, his power to go within the ranges of the presence of the Lord, just like Athaliah wasn't able to do that either. She tried it, and she was taken right back out. And I think the Revelation passage is clear enough about Satan's followers, but there's another passage in Jude which is even more descriptive. It's in Jude verse 6. Jude is only one chapter, so we just refer to it as Jude verse 6. And here's what it says. And the angels which kept not their first estate, where they were in heaven, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So it's not just their leader who's going to be judged, it's the followers as well. And then at the end of verse 15 in our text, For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. So with the prior command to slay anyone who comes within the ranges, and then the phrase here, don't kill her in the house of the Lord. Take her, take her out of here. It is evident that these soldiers understood that their job was to kill Athaliah. There wasn't any question about whether she should die. Just don't do it in the house of the Lord. She was unclean, and the house of the Lord was not a place for the execution of a sinner. In fact, We've studied much about the house of the Lord, beginning with the tabernacle in the wilderness in Moses' day, and then the temple in Solomon's day. But in the house of the Lord, in the Old Testament, only certain animals were to be slain. I'll read to you from Leviticus chapter 22, verses 18 through 20. Leviticus 22, verses 18 through 20, where the Lord told Moses, Speak unto Aaron, now he was the high priest, and his sons, and unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, Whatsoever he be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers in Israel, that will offer his oblation for all his vows, for all his free will offerings, which they will offer unto the Lord for a burnt offering. Now this is talking about the animal sacrifices. Ye shall offer at your own will a male without blemish. That's the key phrase. Without blemish of the beeves, of the sheep, or of the goats. But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer for it shall not be acceptable for you. In other words, in our case, the blood of an unblemished male sheep, a stinky old animal, 
the blood of an unblemished male sheep was acceptable in God's sight, but the blood of a sinful queen like Athaliah was not. She was to be taken out without the ranges to be slain. Can you imagine, and many did, but can you imagine in the Old Testament that many of the children of Israel wouldn't bring the unblemished animal. They wanted to bring the mangy one that was going to die anyway, or perhaps one that was crippled or had one eye. And they obviously either didn't understand or refused to embrace the importance of that unblemished animal. Because in every sacrifice, that unblemished animal pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world, and he was without spot or blemish. So every type of him had to be without spot or blemish. And Athaliah wasn't about to go in there and have her blood shed. The priest said, get her out of here. Verse 16, And they laid hands on her, and she went by the way by the which the horses came into the king's house, and there was she slain. Now, I don't know whether they took her on this path to parade her in front of those who were on the king's highway, or if it was just the most expedient way to get her away from the temple. But these soldiers seized Athaliah and marched her to her execution, and that was that. She was to be gone. You know, in earthly, in earthly terms now, when a person dies, that's it. They don't have any more life. They don't have any more possessions or power or any other thing that a living human being enjoys. But the ending of this life, this earthly life, is the beginning of either eternal death or eternal life. For Athaliah, it is apparent, we have no testimony otherwise, it's very apparent that she began eternal death, separation from God, where the only thing she waits for in hell is the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, at which point she'll be found guilty, she's already condemned, and cast into the lake of fire, which burneth forever and ever. And I suppose that she, like some of the religious unbelievers who will also appear, the ones who were priests and pastors and Sunday school teachers and song leaders and people who never missed church or Sunday school but were lost, never trusted Jesus, I suppose that Athaliah will be in line with them. And as they cry, Lord, Lord, we've... Cast out devils in thy name and prophesied in thy name and done many wonderful works. That she'll say, Lord, Lord, have I not ruled Israel, your people? For eight years did I not rule thy people. And Jesus, the righteous judge, will say the same thing to her as he does the other unbelievers. Depart from me, I never knew you. He will have her forth without the ranges to be cast into the lake of fire. Because she can't come into the presence of the Lord. 
as an unforgiven sinner. In verse 17, And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king also and the people. Now this same passage is also described, I'll see if I can find it real quick, over in Second Chronicles chapter 23. Yes, and in verse 16, as you may know, Second, First and Second Chronicles often tell of the same accounts as First and Second Kings, kind of like the Gospels do. Mark and Matthew, Luke, John have places where you'll see the same account given with different details. They're not contradicting, they're just giving different details about what happened. And to get a full understanding of those events, we often consult two or three Passages from different Gospels. Well, here, it's the same way in the books of the Kings and the Chronicles. And if you remember, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles were all one book. They were called the books of the Kings. So we have them divided for us. And in Second Chronicles 23, verse 16, it said, And Jehoiada made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. So there it added that Jehoiada made the covenant between him and the others. In our text, it says Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people. It doesn't specifically mention him, but he is one of the people, isn't he? So there's no contradiction there, though some might imagine it. I don't know why they would, except to be a nitpicker. And that's what people like to do. They like to take Bible believers and say, well, what about this? Listen, they're not looking for truth. They're looking for a trap. They want to trap you. They want you to doubt the Word of God. And careful studies of all of those passages will render their arguments useless. It always will. Now, about this covenant, this is a beautiful covenant because it goes three ways. First, between the king and the Lord. When the king is in covenant with the Lord, then the rest of the covenant, the remainder of the covenant, and that is between the people and the Lord, which is the second aspect here, and between the people and the king flows very smoothly. If the people say, we have have a covenant with the king, and the king has a covenant with the Lord. Well, you can't be in covenant with the king if you're not in covenant with the Lord. Not in that situation. If you say, I'm going to follow the king. Well, if the king is in covenant with the Lord, he's going to do whatever the Lord commands. You see, that's the way it is in our relationship with Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is in covenant with his father. He said, I always do those things that please the father. I and the father are one. If you're in covenant with Jesus, you're in covenant with God. If you're not in covenant with Jesus, you cannot be in covenant with God. And people who are from religions that deny Jesus but say, oh, no, 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 we believe in God. We just don't believe Jesus is the only way. Then they don't believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They believe in a false God. I don't care if their religion is monotheistic, meaning one God, or polytheistic, meaning many gods. It doesn't matter. These go together. 
And so we have the king in covenant with the Lord, the people in covenant with the Lord, and therefore the people and the king are in covenant. And the priest is in there. He is one of the people. He's not separate from all of them in that way. Now, as beautiful as this covenant is, it's also just as breakable. It's breakable. Why is that? Now, we know that God is not going to break his part of the covenant. He never has. He never will. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, describes one of the attributes of God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, where Moses tells the people, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is a covenant keeper. So God is never the problem when it comes to covenants, agreements, being broken. He never is the problem. It's the people who are the problem. Listen to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 78, verses 10 through 11. Psalm 78, verses 10 through 11. The, the psalmist wrote, They kept not the covenant of God, and refused to walk in His law, and forget His works and His wonders that He had showed them. And in our text, it won't be that it's just the people, the citizens who are the problem, but it will also be the king who is the problem. He's a, he's a people, isn't he? <laughs> Pardon the crude expression, he's a people. He is one of the people. Though he's a king, he's still a, a sinner who needs to be saved. And one of the greatest examples of a king in the Bible, next to David, I believe, is Solomon, his son. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11, God was not pleased with Solomon. And he said, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and give it to thy servant. Now that was God's threat, and he made good on it, to tear the kingdom, to split it from Solomon and give it to his servant so that Israel, the ten tribes in the northern kingdom, would one day be ruled by Jeroboam and Judah by his son Rehoboam because there was a broken covenant. That's right, it was Solomon, the richest wisest king who ever lived, the one who asked for and received understanding from God so that he could judge Israel, such a great people, the one who had peace for 40 years during his reign, broke God's covenant. And now do you understand that it was necessary for a new covenant to be established so that man could be accepted by God permanently. A covenant that couldn't be broken. 
Now, a person may say, how is that possible? If, if the best of men can't keep a covenant with God, and if even the wisest, richest king who ever lived couldn't keep a covenant with God, how is it possible? Well, here's how it's possible. God has to keep both ends of the covenant. That's the only way it can happen. And how could he do that? Well, he had to make a covenant with man that did not depend on man. Because the writer of the Hebrews testifies of the Old Covenant, meaning the Old Testament law, that the people did not continue in it. They continued not in it. It's in chapter 8 of Hebrews, that, that whole passage. So there had to be a new covenant, and guess who God put in charge of mediating, of being the go-between for that new covenant? Jesus the Son of God and God the Son. And He was the mediator of that new covenant so that we who are in Him by faith can be keepers of the covenant. How do we keep the covenant? Through Jesus. And then because Jesus continues in that covenant, then so do we who are saved. That's another way of us seeing in the Bible how Jesus was our representative, is our representative, shall be our representative to God. Us to God. God to us. Just like the Old Testament high priest was the representative of the people to God, God's representative to the people went through the high priest, through those sacrifices in the temple, in the tabernacle. And although it's a wonderful thing here that Israel and her king and the Lord were in a covenant, sinful man would make sure that that was broken sooner than later. Verse 18. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and break it down. His altars and his images break they in pieces thoroughly. And slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars, and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. The people responded to the covenant by first destroying the building where Baal was worshipped. They destroyed the altar, the images, and they even killed the leader of Baal worship himself. It says they slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Now I want you to notice something here. I don't know if you picked up on this. In the temple, the house of the Lord, which was a clean place, Athaliah's blood would dare not be shed. The priest said, get her out of here. Do not kill her in the house of the Lord. We're not shedding unclean blood in here. But if you notice in the house of Baal, this priest of Baal's blood was shed in the house of Baal between the altars. Why would that be? There was no sacrilegious act here because the, the priest of Baal was unclean. His blood was unclean, but guess what the house of Baal was? It was an unclean place. It was not a holy place. It was definitely not the house of the Lord. 
But he and his false gods and the images and the building and everything that had to do with Baal worship was unclean. And this total destruction of this place, the furnishings, the altars, and the priests would still not accomplish God's perfect will for Israel. They could enter covenant, as we read. They could destroy all remnants of Baal. But God's perfect will for them was to destroy the altar of Baal that was in their own hearts. That's where the problem was. And even though all the worldly representations of Baal were destroyed, the sinful hearts of most of the people, both then and now, continue to have that place reserved inside them for an altar that's not the altar of the living God, which is Jesus Christ. And in their case, it'll show up again. It said, And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. So it was not only important to get rid of all the remnants of Baal worship, but also to establish the work of the Lord again. Second Chronicles chapter 23, which parallels this verse, verses 18 through 19. Second Chronicles 23, 18 through 19 clarifies this for us, who these officers are. These aren't soldiers that are stationed inside the house of the Lord to do the work of the Lord. That's not their job. It says, also Jehoiada appointed the offices of the house of the Lord by the hand of the priests, the Levites whom David had distributed in the house of the Lord, to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and singing as it was ordained by David. And he set porters at the gate of the house of the Lord, that none which was unclean in anything should enter in. So it's apparent to me, and maybe to you as well, that the house of the Lord had not been in full vigor. It had not been used... It had been a place to guard the little king, but that was about it. And this is probably because Athaliah suppressed those who worshipped the Lord and pushed that Baal worship onto the people. And we don't know a lot of what happened during those years, but we might suppose that she, like some of these wicked rulers around the world, said, you Christians, you better not be meeting in public. You better not be proselyting and seeking converts. You better not build churches. And so what do you have? You have the underground church, don't you? You have people still meeting and all that, though they don't do it openly. And maybe that was the case in Athaliah's day. Maybe that's why the house of the Lord wasn't fully staffed and the ordinances and sacrifices weren't taking place. That would be a reasonable conclusion I think. Now it's time to put the Levites back in their rightful place, as David did, in obedience to the law of Moses. So they may do the work they're called to do. Now look in verse 19. And he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land 
And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard of the king's house, and he sat on the throne of kings. And next week, when we pick up here, we'll talk about a, the doctrine of positional truth. It's a theological subject. You know all about it, but we'll put it into context for you and help you understand it just a little bit better. And that's all the time we have today. So let's pray and be dismissed. Father, thank you for those who committed this morning, this time, to the study of your word. We're grateful they have enjoyed uh, this time of freedom to worship according to the dictates of our conscience and not to be suppressed by uh, wickedness in government and high places. But Lord, I pray that if and when that day comes for us, we'll be just as diligent to attend to your word, to meet and to learn and to embrace truth. And so, Lord, as we have received from your word, so let us meditate upon it and live our lives according to it and let it not slip from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.